you have your Bible with you, please turn to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to be spending most of our time there in those six verses this morning. The different readings that we heard, particularly the one from 1 Samuel, David and Goliath, and then this six-verse section that we just heard from Matthew, there are people, God's people, who he's asking or expecting to do really hard things, to suffer, to sacrifice, to put their lives on the line. Uh, and it's, there's a thread between especially the David and Goliath story and the way that Jesus answers John the Baptist's disciples that connects those two narratives and I think gives us a, a different way to think about faith. God is kind. He doesn't just kind of give us these truisms about a divine identity that we keep um, properly situated in our minds. That's not, that's not all that God wants in terms of you to know him and you to have faith in him. He gives us much more than that. And we're going to look at that this morning. David was anointed king in obscurity in chapter 16. So um, Saul has failed and Samuel is called by God to go find a new king. And so he does. He goes to this obscure backwoods place um, where Jesse lives. Um, and he goes through all the sons and, and, and he finds David and he anoints him king. And there aren't very many witnesses here. This is a big deal. He's the new king of Israel, according to Yahweh. And yet nobody really knows about it. The presence of God's anointed in the world makes a palpable, palpable difference, though. So the fact that now there's a new king, somehow the world's going to have to know about it. God's not just going to silently um, make this kid his king and not have people know about it. And so in the very next chapter, David vanquished Goliath. And then after he vanquishes Goliath, he hacks off Goliath's head and he holds it up in the air so that all the Israelites can see it, and so that all the Philistines can see it. It's pretty vivid, right? I mean, he doesn't just like walk up to the camp and say, hey, just so you all know, Samuel came by recently, and he made me king. It's not just this like true thing that David says. God sets up an appointment between this kid and this monster, this giant, and then God empowers David to do a miracle with a slingshot, without a weapon other than a slingshot. He gives us something vivid. He gives Israel something vivid to, to be able to latch onto, not just in their brains, but in their imaginations, the, the way that they see and hear and, 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 and embody something that's too amazing to... Um, to really be able to comprehend. He does that. So let's read again Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, and try to listen to that same theme as it runs through the way that Jesus answers John the Baptist's um, delegation of disciples who come to ask Jesus a question. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, 
Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This passage in Matthew's gospel, um, and thankfully this is still here, it sets up like a triptych. It sets up like this um, three-panel painting. On one panel, on the far left panel, you have John the Baptist, and he's languishing in prison. He is the first one to be sent out as a sheep among wolves. He's the first one who's obeyed, even though Jesus hadn't taught this yet. He obeyed all the things that Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 10. He goes and experiences um, people taking offense at him and putting him in in prison, etc. So John the Baptist is on one side, having finished his course as the one who would blaze a trail for Jesus, and now he's in Herod's prison awaiting execution. So John the Baptist is in a tough spot, as we imagine him being painted um, here in this first panel. And then on the other far panel, the right panel, you have Jesus' disciples. Jesus' disciples, just one chapter over, they've just heard Jesus lay out all this truth and advertising stuff as Jesus sends them out as sheep among wolves and He says to them things like, go and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he's just finished telling them, have no fear of those who will persecute you. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Go. So the disciples are in a tough spot, just like John the Baptist. So all these different people who have gone all in with Jesus to follow him and to do everything that he says, to, um, to lay down their lives for the kingdom and for the advancement of the kingdom, we can imagine them as if in a painting. Um, John the Baptist languishing and wondering, like, I've done all this to pave the way for Jesus, and it seems from everything I hear that, that Jesus has caught fire. Like, it's the, the truth of him is spreading everywhere. And so if that's true, then I think I'm done. And so I'm going to send a delegation to confirm that. And meanwhile, he's in this dark prison waiting to be killed. And then on the other hand, the disciples, kind of in a forward-looking way, they're, getting, they're packing their bags and they're getting ready to go as sheep among wolves where they're going to be potentially persecuted and even executed. So, so they're getting ready to go and do these hard things. So the question, the the thing that jumps out from this passage is what's in the center panel? You've got these disciples in different ways, suffering, anxious, uh, vulnerable. What does Jesus do or say in the midst of that for the benefit of these disciples, John the Baptist and his own, and for you and for me? Is it a truism or is it more like David cutting off the head of Goliath and holding it up in the air. Jesus is in the center of this three-panel presentation in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. But what is he saying? And what is Jesus doing? What will he convey in this darkening and gloomy hour for the sake of John the Baptist and his disciples and for the sake of you and me? There are times when faith and joy neatly fall into place. 
life just feels like clear skies and a billowing sail, and you're just, it's just wonderful. And there are other times when faith and joy seem nearly impossible. And I think that's what we're catching. We're catching some of these times when faith and joy seem nearly impossible. Artists um, help us to feel the difference as observers. And, and as we observe other people through art who are in these dark times, um, it helps us. It helps us to not feel alone. It helps us to accept that bad times are normal and that we don't have to feel isolated. I want to read um, some lyrics by a writer. Um, I'm looking for his name here. Oh, Paul David Hewson. And maybe some people will giggle. Um, but he, he writes this in, um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a lyric. I can't believe my existence I see myself from a distance. I can't get back inside. Sometimes the air is so anxious. All my thoughts are so reckless. And all my innocence has died. Sometimes I wake at four in the morning where all the darkness is swarming and it covers me in fear. Sometimes I'm full of anger and grieving, so far away from believing that any sun will reappear. Sometimes when the painted glass shatters and you're the only thing that matters, but I can't see you through the tears. Sometimes the end isn't coming. It's not coming. The end is here. That's a gripping, vivid description, isn't it, of some stuff that probably some of us have experienced. Waking up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep because you're just in the midst of gnawing grief or pain or anger or something. And, and, and the writer of this song is even saying, it's, it's to the point where, and it doesn't resolve in the, in the, in the lyric. The, the poem doesn't resolve. It, it just gets left there. Sometimes the end isn't coming. The end is here, period. I think that captures where John the Baptist is. I think that that captures maybe some of what the disciples are up at night wondering about in terms of what's gonna happen to us when we go into this or that city. But the disciples need more than just being drawn into a community of sufferers. Um, that helps the authors and painters of a world that, that help us to see the other people that resonate with our um, situation. At the end of the day, that's not enough. Jesus could have commiserated with John the Baptist. I'm sorry that you're going through this. I mean, he could have done any number of things, but what does he do? What does he do as we imagine being one of those figures in the left or right panel of this triptych of Matthew 11, 1 through 6? What if we were John the Baptist in this pit of despair or one of those disciples packing up to embark on a treacherous journey that we know includes searing pain and loss as we volunteer for a life of suffering and isolation and betrayal and possibly execution? Wouldn't we want more than validation? I would need to know that this is going to be worth it. I would need to know somehow that my sacrifice will matter, right? I mean, happy to do it, but it sure would be nice to know that it's going to matter somehow. The Israelites got that with David. He didn't set it up so that David or Samuel went about informing Israel that he was the new king. He set up a meeting between David and Goliath that turned out to be strikingly vivid and altogether compelling. 
okay, he's the king. <laughs> Sounds good. I'll follow him. Um, seems, like, seems like he's the man for the job or the boy for the job. And now from the central panel addressing John the Baptist and his disciples, all of Jesus' disciples, and all who would follow Jesus on a path of suffering, Jesus composes lyrics. So let's look again at chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, Go and tell John what you hear and see. Verse 4. Blind see again, and lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and deaf hear, and dead rise up, and poor receive good news, and blessed is whoever does not stumble over me. I want to talk about the structure of this poem, and it really stands out. It stands out in terms of the the language and the structure of the rest of Matthew's gospel. It really does present like a song. And it's awkward. There are these, it's an awkward structure of nouns and verbs without any articles. It's not the blind see and the deaf hear. It's not that. It's somehow translated that way in English, but it's much clunkier than that. It's like Jesus is putting these naked nouns out there. Just, he's just saying blind, see again, deaf, um, hear, lepers, are cleansed. It's not the lepers or some lepers. So these nouns impress upon us the fact that Jesus is penetrating into the very source and kernel of human affliction, not just some one-off cases. Tell John that seven lepers were healed. I penetrated all the way into leprosy itself and demolished it. I rolled it back. The, the Messiah being here in person is going to get into blindness and he's going to fix it. Everything that's been vandalized by Satan and by sin, Jesus, the anointed one, is repelling into all of those places and he's fixing them and making them right. Go and tell John this. That's the way that these nouns work. And then the way that this... Um, use of the word and, and you can see it in the English as well, but, but you've got these like funny structures of noun and verb, and then they, they get followed each time by and, and that, that, and that gives this sense of breathtaking, comprehensive, like it's an unending story, right? Blind, see again, and, lame walk, and, lepers are cleansed, and, deaf hear, and, dead rise up, and poor receive good news. It's just like this, right? It, it gives it this momentum and this excitement and the sense that it's um, comprehensive and unending. But this is also cool. The verbs in the Greek, they're always at least twice as long as the nouns. And so you, you get this noun that gets put there without any article. It just gets put there. And it's the shortest, most compact way that you can possibly say this noun in a way that's like um, general not like some, um, some lepers, but it's just like lepers. And then the verb, uh, the verb that describes how it's being fixed or redeemed or healed, that's always at least twice as long in terms of syllables than the nouns, every time. There's never a noun that's longer than a verb, and the verbs are always at least twice as long as the nouns. This just may sound like a nerdy 
thing to notice and some coincidence that's of no consequence. But I don't think so. It's as if the ailments of mankind shrink into nothingness at the presence of Jesus' healing power. When Jesus comes into this mess, the mess shrinks back. It, it, dis, it just kind of dissolves as he overwhelms it with, um, with healing and restores it to uh, its intended purpose and, and all these created activities that were good, that had been stolen or broken, and he's fixing them. So before our very eyes, in this poem, fragmented man, vandalized man, venomized man, is being made whole. The presence of God in history, in our midst, it's intimately bound up with the direst needs of mankind. And here Jesus is singing, actually, through lyric, the power and love of Yahweh through him to rescue and restore all that has been vandalized. This matters. Infinitely more valiant and awe-inspiring than David with Goliath's head. Jesus is vanquishing Satan. At the cross, Jesus will cry, it is finished, and a veil will be torn from top to bottom. And three days later, Jesus will emerge from death, not just holding some head, but he will have crushed the head of death. It will be defeated when Jesus emerges from that tomb. And so here we're getting kind of a foretaste of that as we zoom in on this group of people surrounding Jesus all of whom are suffering, all of whom are anxious, all of whom are waking up at four in the morning when all the darkness is swarming and they're covered in fear. And it's because they're trying to be faithful to Jesus. How does Jesus help their faith? Through a truism. He does it through this amazing, remarkable, piling up of beautiful healing statements. It's like he's showing us how powerful he is and he's showing us the loving intention that he has for the world and for you and for those who you love even when it feels like the end is here. So how can we respond to this? A couple of things. One is that we can accept him. The, the end of this poem, this awkward, this poem that's written in, in an intentionally awkward way in order to convey those things that we talked about. It ends in a bizarre way. It ends with a beatitude. Blessed are those who don't stumble over me. The first thing that we can do is to accept Jesus, accept him this way. Accept him as the one who's come into the world to fix it and who's calling us like those disciples on the far right panel to, to carry him into the world and to bring his kingdom, to announce it and to work for it. Only two things can be done with a building stone at a construction site. Only two things. It either gets incorporated as it's been designed into the building and brings definition and bears weight and, and is integrated into the building or it's rejected and cast off and just thrown over there somewhere so that as people go about building the building 
the way that they want it without that stone, they're just doomed to stumble over it. It's just in the way. It's over there where you're trying to park your, your back loader or your front loader or your whatever, wheelbarrow. Or you're going over there to do something else and you, you stumble on it. Jesus doesn't set it up. The Bible doesn't set it up as we heard in the psalm and as we hear in First Peter. Jesus doesn't set it up where you can take me or leave me. You can call me um, a, a really great prophet or a good healer or something like that. He sets it up so that you have to either reject him or accept him. So the first thing is that as we find ourselves in that third panel, running the race marked out for us, that we can accept him the way that he's presented himself here as this victorious king and healer. And the second thing, I believe he's inviting us to, to behold him the way that he invites us to, specifically. He presents himself here as a stone that could define us, a stone with a specific shape that, that he wants you to marvel and accept the shape of his power and the glory of his perfect love, that he's healing everything. As you labor in your little corner of the world to bring the kingdom where God has called you in the way that he's gifted you and placed you, that, that to know that behind you and with you is the one who's healing everything, to accept him that way. To receive him that way. Not just to receive true things about him, but to receive him this way. To receive him for his power when your days are long and you're not seeing any fruit. When you're, when you're embroiled in conflict or anxiety. To receive him for his power and for the glory of his perfect love. To know that your suffering is not in vain and that your sacrifices are worth it. I believe God is inviting us to let this poem of Jesus make our hard work lighter as we labor to bring God's goodness to our little corners of the world. The presence of God's anointed, be it David or Jesus, especially Jesus, makes a palpable difference. It makes a palpable difference. Jesus is making a palpable difference. And we can look over the sweep of human history where, where Christianity has been even adjacent and it's making a palpable difference. And we are the fullness of him who fills all in all. So whatever he's calling you to do that's difficult or that's hard, know that he is with you and that he's animating you and that he's going to see it through. So may the love of the healing king beat in your heart and may this song of his kingdom lodge in your imagination as you follow him. In Christ's name, amen.